This is the CR Checkup Podcast. My name is John. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ that struggles with drugs, alcohol, and pride. And you're listening to a Testimony Talk. On our Testimony Talks, we get a chance to hear from someone who has taken the steps and applied them to their own life. This gives us the opportunity to see how the program works and to gain hope that we might have similar experiences. Welcome back to the podcast. Super excited to have a very good friend of mine today. Uh, would you please introduce yourself for us? Hi, my name is Will. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ and I struggle with alcohol. Hey, Will. Man, it is so good to have you on the podcast. I feel like, man, this is like a long time coming. Yeah, it's good to be here. I'm really glad that I'm getting the opportunity to share my story and hopefully be able to inspire or help some other people. Yeah, dude. And uh, your, let me just say your testimony, your life and uh, even your wife, your family, you know, it's just already a testament. Um, We get the privilege of going to uh, celebrate recovery together. And it's not so often that we uh, get to have folks on the podcast from from RCR. But um, you're one of those guys that I've, you know, been seeing almost since the start of RCR at Palm Valley. And uh, it's been so cool, man. So cool to see you. Uh, grow and then get an opportunity to share your testimony on a Monday night um, is just it's it's really big deal for me man and um, I I'm just encouraged by you and, and super excited to see what God's going to do in your in your life next man yeah I'm just really excited to get to share this you know my two-year anniversary and um, you know I was in and out of CR at the beginning so you know now I've been there religiously and studiously for the last two years you know, I was really excited when you asked me to share my story. You know, it's something I've been working on and, you know, I'm really serious about my recovery. So once again, I'm just really glad to get to share that with other people. Yeah, man, I am excited that you share it too, man. And uh, I can see your excitement. And that's one of those things that just keeps me going as a leader as well. And just seeing other people getting stoked out on recovery just psychs me out, man. I love it. But, um, you know, all blessing to God or all glory to God that we have people on here um, who don't go to our CR or maybe they missed our CR. And so I was uh, just wondering, would you share uh, with our listeners just a little bit about uh, your story, kind of your experience and uh, what brought you to CR? Absolutely. Uh, so to, to start off, you know, I go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I do a lot of recovery things. And, but the reason I come to celebrate recovery, one, there's a bunch of like-minded people mm. who understand what recovery means. And two, because it's spiritually based in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the center of my recovery. He's the center of my life, the center of my relationships. So, you know, I come to celebrate recovery to nurture my soul, you know, and feed, feed the spirit, which is what I need most of all to stay sober. Mm. For me, I was raised, um, I grew up in Arkansas. I was raised in a typical Southern family, you know, very strict household. My parents were very hands-on. That's a euphemism for, you know, <laughs> corporal punishment. They, you know, they, they definitely did not spare the rod. Uh, and um, I was really fortunate. I, the theme of my, my story is that I've lived a blessed life. 
despite my struggles with alcohol, which became very severe over time, God saw fit to bless me all the way through. And that's not a typical story for a lot of alcoholics or addicts or anybody else who's struggling, you know, in any area of their life. A lot of them, you know, they go through a, a lot worse things than I did. You know, they have a lot worse things in their background than I do. So for me, I grew up in a loving Christian home. My parents were really strict. And of course, as a kid, I was really bummed out about that. I didn't particularly care for it very much <laughs> right. at the time. However, as I got older, I started to realize, you know, that they were molding and shaping me. You know, they made me a hard worker. You know, they instilled a sense of discipline. And most of all, they made me instilled inside of me a sense of commitment. Mm. You know, anything that I was supposed to do, it had to be done correctly. It had to be done correctly the first time. And that just clicked with my personality. So as I grew up, I became, and I know this will really shock anybody that knows me, but a bit of a perfectionist. <laughs> um, and, you know, I did really well in school. And, you know, I did really well with a lot of things that I tried. You know, I went out for football. I was 95 pounds soaking wet when I went out. So the first year, the coach wouldn't even let me play. But by the time I graduated, you know, I was st a starter on offense, defense, and every special team, you know. Mm. I would, once again, I lived a blessed life and I worked hard and, you know, that's just the way my parents raised me up, but I was also a bit of a nerd and, you know, I had a difficult time relating to other people. And if, you know, there's a theme for my childhood, I would say that's what it was. It was isolation hmm. and it was, you know, staying away from my parents so I wouldn't get in trouble or get disciplined. Um, you know, children were to be seen and not heard. So until I got into my later teen years, even if I was hanging out with them, I was sitting in the quarter silent, you know, so I got to where I just sat in my room and read books a lot. And, you know, they used to play a game in my high school library where they would go in and pull a book and see how many books they had to pull before they came to a library card with my name on it. <laughs> and uh, it was surprisingly, shockingly few. Wow. And but we didn't have video games back then, but we had books. So right. I became somewhat of an escapist too. I spent hmm. a lot of time escaping from, whatever reality I perceive. Looking back now as a near nearly 50 years old, I realize that your your perspective on things when you're a teenager are very distorted mm -hmm. and you know not correct. But at the time, you know, I felt like I was a geek, you know, that I didn't have much value to other people. I sought validation a lot. You know, these are common themes throughout Celebrate Recovery. I'm certainly not the first person to experience these things. So that's what my childhood was like. You know, I graduated second in my high school class, um, you know, made all conference on the football team, was the, the second co-captain. There, there's a lot of seconds in my life, but mm. I still did really well and I was really blessed. Um, the other part of my teenage years, I was very heavily involved in church with my parents. Um, you know, I was involved with a youth group. I was involved with all the missions. I was involved in everything we did. I probably spent almost as much time at church as I did or with people from church as I did at school. Mm. So um, I really felt a calling to the ministry back then. And so all the way through my ninth, 10th, 11th grade years and halfway through my senior year, that was my plan for my life. I had already been accepted to Southern Nazarene University. I already had a scholarship and that's what I was gonna do. I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a missionary or a pastor, but it was one or the other. But somewhere in my senior year, I started to, to develop I don't know if it was pride or I don't even know what to call it, but this fear of missing out. One, I felt like I was destined for great things. I felt like, you know, I was going to be the youngest billionaire in the world. And man, you just can't do that being a preacher. 
and I started to feel too good, you know, too smart for God. And uh, halfway through my senior year, I had a real crisis of faith, and I turned my back on that calling. And as a result, I hadn't applied to any other colleges, so I found myself doing what all young men of age do when they're looking for adventure. I joined the Navy so I could go out and see the world. And so that's how I ended up being enlisted. And once again, the pattern repeats. I did well, second in my class, second in the next class. And during my second vocational school, and I was going into submarines to uh, be a nuclear electrician. In my second trade school, I applied on a whim to the United States Naval Academy. And I kind of thought about that when I joined the Navy, that that was something that would be cool to do. But the odds of getting in back then were pretty slim, about one in a thousand. And fortunately for me, I got accepted. And so I took a hiatus from my military career, went to the United States Naval Academy and did sort of a different military career and ended up getting commissioned as a junior officer and then went back to submarines as a submarine junior officer. It was while I was at the Naval Academy, because I was so heavily involved in church in high school and through my formative years, I really had a negative view of alcohol. And I know, mm. <laughs> definitely know anybody that knows me will find that shocking. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, and I tended to be very judgy, judgy, judgmental to people that drink, especially underage people that drink. Mm. And it was heavily frowned upon when I was enlisted. But my freshman year at the Naval Academy, I turned 21. And I thought, well, you know, I've accomplished all of this in just my short 21 years, you know, maybe I do deserve to drink. And that's what Mm -hmm. sailors do anyway. And man, I think from the very first drink, I loved it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, uh, in my testimony, I talked about the void that was forming inside of me up to this time and how nothing I did seemed to ever fill that void. And the void really started and got bad when I turned my back on God. Um, I was still going to church at this time, and I did all through my college years. But as I drank more, I went to church less. And for a while, it seemed like alcohol was filling up that void of what I was missing. It lubricated my pretty dry and and uh, timid personality quite a bit. <laughs> and man, I felt like a rock star when I was drinking. And I felt like everybody loved me. Everybody wanted to be around me and hang out with me. And of course, you know, I'm, I think every drunk thinks that. Right. And uh, it really for me, it really did not take long. By my uh, junior year, you know, I had my first alcohol-related incident. You know, I passed out in a bunk, and my drunk roommates thought I needed a drunk watch, so they tried to pull me out of there, and I flipped out, um, tore down a whole suspended ceiling, almost got uh, punished for that, but I was able to repair the ceiling, so they let me off with a warning. So I had to tone it down. But by my senior year, I had it all planned out where Monday through Friday, the only day I couldn't drink was Wednesday. And then, of course, I could drink all through the weekend. And really, by my senior year, I was going to bed drunk almost every night. And I thought it was okay. I had, uh, you know, my freshman year, I screwed around. But from my sophomore year till the time I graduated, I had all A's and six B's in six semesters you know, at a top tier engineering school, that was pretty good. So I felt entitled, I guess. Sure. So man, I was out there drinking, partying hard. You know, I do my work. I had a really strict study discipline that I followed, which is, you know, why I was able to succeed academically. And then I was out there drinking and it got to where I drank until I passed out every time I went out. 
Hmm. Um, you know, I think I had my first blackout within six months of when I started drinking. Also met my first wife, uh, note the word, keyword there, first wife. So right. she was my future ex-wife while I was at the Naval Academy. And she was the, I mean, within a year of me starting drinking, she was already starting to tell me that I had a problem. And, you know, between that and going to sea, once I eventually made it to the submarine, you know, that, that marriage was destined to fail. And it was really more the alcohol. You know, she had a uh, intervention for me and I totally blew that off. You know, I thought she was crazy. Um, it wasn't until after she left that I started to really think that maybe I had a problem. Mm. And by then, that's when the first spiral started in my life. Um, I volunteered because she left, I started drinking every single night. You know, I was drinking probably at that point a half a fifth of whatever. Um, I had a full bar in my apartment. I was an officer. You know, I was making quite a bit of money at that time and uh, thought I could just do whatever I wanted. Mm -hmm. And when I my tour the submarine came to an end, I volunteered for an overseas tour in Bahrain thinking, hey, over there, I won't be able to drink. I'm going to be able to dry out because by then I was starting to get a little bit worried. And uh, well, went overseas and it turns out Bahrain, which is where I went. That's like the sin city of the Middle East. That's where all the Saudis go to, Jeez. you know, to get their groove on, so to speak. Wow. And so there was alcohol everywhere. Now it costs like three times more than it costs here because it was heavily, heavily taxed, but I was making money hand over fist. It was a war zone. This was immediately after September 11th. Wow. So, I mean, they were just throwing money at uh, military people left and right. So I had plenty of money, you know, and I just continued to drink and I was there less than six months before I got my first DUI. You know, uh, they sent me off to treatment. Um, the DUI was, it was a small one. I passed out in the car while it was running. It was in the winter and it actually does get cold in the Middle East in the winter. I know you find that shocking. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> I passed out, fell across the gear shifter, put it into drive and the car idled into the car in front of me and oh, somebody dang. had paid somebody to watch that car. And that was my first DUI. So when I came back, my captain, the Commodore of the destroyer squadron that I was stationed with, um, I was the submarine liaison officer. He said, you know what? You're one of the best officers I have. You know, it was kind of a, a stupid DUI to begin with. We're just going to toss it. And they did. They tossed it out. Then wow. I think I've mentioned it a couple of times now. I've lived a really blessed life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I came back from treatment. I had a layover and I was already drinking on the layover. So, yeah, the treatment didn't really work out while I was there. My mom died. <laughs> Oh. You know, the, yeah, it didn't go so well. And, uh, and I talked more about that on Monday when I did my testimony, but anyhow, I got another DUI shortly thereafter. And that pretty much has ended my Naval career. They shipped me back stateside. I went to San Diego and by then I had already met Maria who I married to today. Thank God. And mm -hmm. so when they asked me where I wanted to go, I said, San Diego, because we had gotten pretty serious while I was overseas in a long distance relationship and we were already talking about marriage. Hmm. So I ended up in San Diego. Um, it took them a long time to process me out. By the time I got out of the Navy, I'd already racked up yet another DUI. And this one of course had more severe consequences because it was stateside. And, uh, and I was drinking a fifth of gin every single night. And at that point, 
I was probably at the lowest point I've ever been in my life. I mean, I wanted to quit drinking so bad. You know, I was losing a career, which frankly, I was going to get out of the Navy anyway, but that wasn't the way I wanted to do it. Right. Um, you know, I'd already lost a marriage. I was already talking about another marriage and I didn't want to lose that one, but I could not quit. Um, the craving, I, I don't even know how to describe it, but when I would get off work, you know, by the time I got back to my apartment, my hands were shaking so bad I could barely put the keys in the lock. And the first thing I would do is toss the keys on the table, slam the door behind me on my way to the freezer to grab the gin. And, you know, I would down two good glassfuls of gin and then continue on with my evening. And it just became difficult to function like that. And I would try, I would tell myself, I'm not, that's it. I'm not going to do it anymore tonight. I'm not going to drink. Well, when you drink that much for so long, your body's all messed up and I wouldn't be able to sleep. I would have crazy dreams. And I'd find myself every time at two in the morning, driving around, trying to f find some clerk that would sell me booze under the table. And uh, so that's what I was doing when I got discharged from the Navy with a general discharge, unfortunately, instead of honorable. And uh, when I married Maria. Now, Maria already had a stepdaughter, so I, or had a daughter who became my stepdaughter. And I told myself, that's going to be the end of this. You know, I'm going to stop drinking. Well, suffice it to say, that's not exactly what happened. Uh, you can't come down from the amount that I was drinking to nothing overnight. Mm. So I kept, I started hiding bottles. And that was the first time in my life I'd ever had to hide alcohol. Hmm. And she, it wasn't even three or four months before she found the bottles and it came to a head. And I thought I was going to take off, but we had actually been trying to get pregnant. And right when I took off, found out she did, wow. that she was pregnant. So I came back and for a while, I actually was able to taper off the drinking. I ended up losing like 30 pounds, you know, starting to feel better, look better. I would only drink when we went to parties. Of course, we went to a lot of parties uh, <laughs> with her, you know, with her family. My family's from Arkansas, but her family all lives here. Mm -hmm. So we went to a lot of parties, you know, but I could maintain as long as I could see the next party coming. You know, I could sort of limp across the finish line to that party. Right. And that went on for a few years. Then we bought a house. And uh, this drinking started getting worse. I started hanging out. I do have some cousins on this side of the country. We started hanging out with them. And they were heavy drinkers. And things really started to spiral again. Um, you know, we decided that I wouldn't have any more alcohol in the house. And that I was going to stop drinking altogether. And that caused a panic. And the next thing I knew, I was drinking at work, went to treatment again. And that sort of worked. Then I would only drink if I was on business trips with work, missed a lot of flights, uh, extended a lot of trips just so I could have a couple of extra days to drink. You know, in the meantime, you know, my wife's getting to the point where she can't trust me. You know, I'm lying to her constantly. It, it was pretty ridiculous. We moved to Arizona and then things just escalated times 10. You know, I, Got a much better job here. So we moved here to take it and, you know, got a promotion within my first year and a half and uh, just continued to spiral, you know, and along the way, I left so much wreckage, you know, with my kids, with my wife, with cousins, with everybody. I mean, when all you do is drink to pass out, nobody really wants to hang around with you anymore. You know, even now there's still repercussions with people that don't want to come around because of the amount of drinking I did. And uh, anyway, 
two years ago, I, uh, we got in an argument. I said, that's it. She went upstairs and I didn't even say anything to her. I just jumped in the Jeep, no clothes, nothing. Drove down the road, checked into a hotel and disappeared for five days. And it was like, that was like December 17th. So I came home on December 22nd and amazingly, as she always did before, she let me come home. Mm. And, you know, and I told her, that's it. I'm going to get help. I'm going to go to celebrate recovery. We're going to lick this thing. And we went to a few celebrate recoveries. And then I started finding excuses not to go. And by that summer, I was drinking again. I was drinking at work again. Uh, and then the Christmas of 20, oh, I'm sorry, that was three years ago. Then the Christmas of 2018, mm-hmm. I ended up doing the exact same thing. I went to work. I had a half a pint and I thought that's all I'm going to drink. Started at 4.30 in the morning at 5.30 in the evening. I woke up at my desk. There was a mostly empty fifth of gin under my desk and the door was closed and my door was locked. I closed it and locked it so nobody could get in. They all assumed that somebody came and picked me up because my Jeep was still outside. I had like 15 missed calls from Maria. And I mean, I freaked. I was so ashamed. I thought there's no way I can go home now. You know, this is it. This is the end. You know, ended up checking into a hotel and then I did some serious damage and it lasted for nine days. I didn't even call her for the first four days. Um, I didn't really talk to anybody for the first three days. Finally, I started getting text messages from my family back in Arkansas saying they were booking flights to come out and start, look, you know, walking the streets to look for me. And uh, so I finally called them back and they convinced me to call Maria and tell her where I was. And I told her, oh, you know, it's through. I'm going back to Arkansas. You know, we're going to have to sell the house. We're going to have to do this. We're going to have to do that. Very dramatic, you know. And uh, to make a long story short, that was my bottom. You know, on December 25th, I was supposed to come see the kids. I didn't even wake up. I was passed out all day. So I couldn't even make it to see my kids. Didn't even call them or anything until the next day. And then finally, on the... uh, Well, on the 26th, I called the veteran suicide prevention line. I wasn't suicidal, but like I told the lady on the phone, I just don't want to live anymore. This is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I can't stop. And she prayed for me. And that prayer was the beginning of the change. And I had this intense religious experience that night, this spiritual experience where I just told God that I surrendered, that I was done. I sort of went through steps one through three right then and there. (laughs) And, uh, called my wife and she said, come home. You could come home. You haven't done anything so bad. You know, and of course she had been praying for me. My family had been praying for me. And that experience, that spiritual experience changed me. It changed me Mm -hmm. forever. And from that experience, that's how I came back to celebrate recovery, you know, and Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got a sponsor. I went through the steps, you know, I did everything the way that it's supposed to be done for somebody who truly wants to recover. But I did it by putting God first, you know, and giving God control and, you know, realizing that I couldn't do it. And that's it in a nutshell. So good, man. A a big nutshell, uh, a really big nutshell. Yeah. (laughs) No, I I love it, man. And and there's so many things too that just uh, pop out to me, but 
Um, it seems like a, a, a kind of a common theme, I think, lately with uh, some of the folks that I've been having on here is this conversation about um, Celebrate Recovery and Alcoholics Anonymous or like other meetings and the importance of having um, both. And so I just kind of wanted to maybe hear a little bit more of your thoughts on um you know, why is it so important uh, for those of us who struggle with drugs and alcohol? And I would probably go on to say, if it's codependency or any other thing that there's secular meetings, why is it, why should I go to other secular meetings on top of Celebrate Recovery? The, the first thing that I tell everybody, and let me tell you, I am an advocate for both. You know, everybody I talk to, I tell them about Celebrate Recovery and I tell them about Alcoholics Anonymous, even my boss. Uh, Alcoholics, any 12-step program, yeah. if you read the literature, if you read the basis of the program, is a Christian spiritual program. That mm-hmm. was the origins of it. So it's only secular because the groups want to make it secular. Right. In my case, I need to be around other alcoholics, other people that have done the same depraved, selfish, I mean, intensely selfish things that I've done, but who understand that yes, I did it, but it wasn't really me, not the real me that was doing Mm -hmm. it. And and you're going to get that at Alcoholics Anonymous. And you do get it to an extent at Celebrate Recovery, but in Celebrate Recovery, it's more of a mixed bag. Um, It's a lot harder for me as an alcoholic to relate to someone who's dealing with codependency in their life or, you know, with sexual impurity or anything else. It's very difficult for me to relate with that on a level you know, where I can converse intelligently with them specifically about their situation. And that's why I think Alcoholics Anonymous or, or a specific 12-step program to whatever your issues are is really important and crucial to a successful recovery. Yeah. Celebrate agree, recovery, yeah. on the other hand, reminds me that everybody's sick. It's not just me. Mm. Everybody has their thing, you know, and it sort of diminishes my alcoholism and it makes me realize it's not so special you know, because alcoholics can tend to think that way about themselves. And most <laughs> right? importantly, everybody is there to worship and everybody is there seeking God. And so, you know, that really hits both angles for me. Yeah, no, I love the way that you say that. And I think um, one of the other things that that comes up, and I know that we kind of even had this conversation early on when you came back to CR um, about this idea of like doing whatever it takes, Right. And I think um, there's this, especially when I get into recovery, I mean, I wanted it even in my active addiction. It was like, I want what I want and I want it right now. And I was, uh, before I started getting well, I was already, you know, entitled. But then when I started getting well, I still had this entitled, you know, pride and just kind of this. I don't know, persona about myself that I thought that I knew what I needed and I knew um, how it needed to be. And um, being in, I thank God that I had a celebrate recovery or have a celebrate recovery to be able to, um, you know, have that fellowship in that community, but it's through other um, meetings and through other uh, places that I would go to that I would see, well, it's not all about what I think is best, or it's not all about what I want. And when I go to other places, it allows me to be uh, more focused on 
the the experience rather than what I expect it to do for me. You know what I'm saying? I do. And, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm going to throw a plug in here. Like I always do. Cause you know me <laughs> about the steps, the steps. I did not know how to live until I got into recovery. Yeah. You know, aside, it turns out that alcoholism was the least of my problems really. Mm-hmm. And, and going through those steps, I really learned how to search myself and weed out the pride, which I struggle with on a daily basis. Even now, you know, I'm a manager. I'm actually a middle level manager. I'm not a lower level manager. You know, mm-hmm. I'm one level below the executive. You know, so it's diff- It's very easy for me to get caught in that pride trap. And, sure. you know, like I said, feeling special, you know, that somehow my alcoholism makes me special. <laughs> you know, I struggle with those things all the time. But going through those steps gave me the tools. It gave me a more rigid approach to approaching God that actually made me more receptive to what he had to do. Mm. And I remember going into the steps and this kind of touches on what you were saying. I remember when I went into the steps, you know, my prayer then was God, um, tell me, tell me what your will for my life is. Reveal your will to me. Mm -hmm. And by the time I got done with the 12 steps, that's not my prayer anymore. My prayer now is God put me in your path, put me on the plan Mm. that you want. I don't care where it's going. I don't need to know that. Wow. I just want to be on that path, you know, and that's the transformation that happened when I was doing the 12 steps. And some people might understand the subtle difference of that. Some people might not, but for me, it was profound. Yeah, no, I love that so much, man. And actually speaking on the steps, uh, I, we're actually talking about uh, step six. We've been talking about it for a couple of weeks now, RCR. And um, uh, step six, of course, is that we were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And I was just wondering, um, what are your thoughts on that? What was your experience working through step six? And kind of what would you share with our listeners uh, who are maybe heading into that step or who are in it? Well, first, my sponsor, he, he took me through the rinse cycle on the washing machine. You know, we did step four, then five, then six. And it was like, nope, you failed. Go back to step four. <laughs> you know, you're not ready. You're not entirely ready yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, step four was my favorite step. I've made no secret of that. Mm-hmm. You know, learning how to let go of things that were driving me nuts. But in that learning where my weaknesses were, you know, which character defects of mine were causing those problems. And Lord knows I still have enough. But what I found was when you thoroughly go through step four and you thoroughly go through step five with a sponsor, with that other person, when you land on step six, you'll know that you're ready, that Mm. you're entirely ready. And Like I said, we had to go through it a few times before I reached that level of understanding and truly wanted those defects to be removed. And my prayer every day is, you know, God, help me to stay sober today. You know, help me to be a good father, to be a good husband. But oddly enough, what I was entirely ready to have removed, alcohol wasn't even on the list. I mean, at that point, I already wasn't drinking. It was foolish pride. It was sexual insecurity. It was... You know, there were a lot of things that I found were driving this behavior in me that made me dissatisfied. Mm. And, you know, and 
for me that being entirely ready meant I was ready to be content with what God gave me. Mm. You know, contentment and joy are what I found from this program. And I wasn't entirely ready to have those defects removed until I realized that. Wow. That's so good, man. I think um, that content word, I think, is almost like a bad word for alcoholics. I guess any of us who are struggling, um, it's like, wow, content, man. Like, that just seems like, you know, boring. You know what I mean? But um, I love that. (laughs) Exactly. But um, yeah, no, you definitely, that, that is the best way to sum it up. But man, what a beautiful thing content is in recovery. It's, it's one of the the biggest blessings that come from it. And man, just, I never could have, I could have never, never could have dreamed how good it was. Right. I guess. Yeah. I think for me, it was like, I didn't even, I had never experienced it, it, how it really was meant to be. And so I was afraid of it. And then once I experienced it, it was like, oh, I want this in all, I want to be content in all areas of my life because it's so much better than I could have imagined. And so, dude, so good. Can I share, can I share yeah. something with you about that? I shared this with my sponsee recently. You know, the, the Jesus said that it was harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it would be for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Eye of a needle. <laughs> it's yeah it's harder it. for the rich yeah it's yeah it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven and i yeah. think it's because of the contentment yeah you know people ambition and you know the next thing the fear of missing out i mean those are real soul killers and crushers and once you once you become free from that and you're able to live in the now and and to accept what you have at this moment i mean it's very very liberating very liberating, but that's not easy to see from the outside. Just like you said. Right. No. And that, I think that that's, uh, you know, what I was trying to say a couple of weeks ago too, as we were talking about, uh, step six, that one day at a time, that's the positive side of one day at a time. That's so good. Mm-hmm. I love that man. And obviously we could talk for hours and hours on this, man. I'm just so, I'm so grateful for what God has done in your life and, and uh, just the victories that he's given to you and Maria. We love you guys at RCR. And so, so grateful for all that you guys bring to it and excited to see, um, you know, what, what, what God's going to do next to you guys. But um, before we, we jump off here, um, I would love if you just kind of shared with the newcomers, you know, those who are early in their program or um, even those two who are listening and they're thinking, you know, celebrate recovery isn't for them or uh, they're unsure. What, what would you say to, to each one of those individuals? I would say first, the fact that they're coming to celebrate recovery tells me that they're seeking God. Mm-hmm. And if they continue to seek God, then they will find him, mm-hmm. you know? And if, if you start seeking God, God is not in a bottle. He's not in a syringe. You know, God's not in our insecurities. So if you seek him, you start to walk past those things and you start to move past them. But it's all mm-hmm. about perseverance. It's it's not obvious at the beginning. At the beginning, that's the point where you're without hope. You didn't come into the celebrate recovery because you were feeling great about yourself. <laughs> right. So, you know, you've got to get past the shame. And I remember how, I mean, I and you may remember those first few months I came to celebrate recovery after I had just totally tanked two Christmases in a row for my family and put them through hell, literally. 
I was so ashamed, but I had to work past that shame. And that's when Celebrate Recovery really started to make a difference in my life. Mm-hmm. So you just got to, you got to keep, you got to keep going towards God and you'll get past all of that. Yeah. Stick with it. Um, absolutely. So what about those who, who think CR just isn't for them or that it wouldn't be, be a benefit? Would you, what would you say to those? It's like I said about Alcoholics Anonymous, it's a spiritual program. The difference between Alcoholics Anonymous and Celebrate Recovery is that Celebrate Recovery is honest about it. Hmm. And, you know, no matter what program you go to, there has to be a spiritual basis. And, you know, to say that it's not for you is to, to what's the, what's the expression to throw it away, you know, prior or prior, was it contempt prior to investigation? Investigation. Yeah. And, you know, I would say it is for you. You may not know it yet. Just stick with it and you'll mm. see that it is. That's good, man. Yeah. Just try it out. Yeah. You never know. You just uh, give it a shot too. That's good, we man. Don't bite. <laughs> I said, we don't bite and we give away free food. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, what can you lose, man? <laughs> exactly. Oh, I love it, man. Well, I love you, bro. And thank you so much for uh, your steps of obedience and your willingness to just share on these things. And uh, man, God bless you guys, bless your family and just everything that you do, man. And uh, I couldn't be more grateful for, for you and your family and uh, your willingness to, to serve, uh, serve God and serve uh, the folks at CR, man. So thank you so much. And, and, you're welcome. And thank you so much for having me on and for your mentorship and what you mean to our Celebrate Recovery. You know, I can't even express, you know, how that program, you're the program that you're leading has changed my life. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to come and give back a little bit. Praise God. Thank you for listening to A Testimony Talk. I hope that you take what we talk about here and have conversations with others. The things that we talk about on here are meant to start conversations, not end them. So I pray that you would talk with someone about what you heard here today and that you would look for ways to be a light in your own community. If you are struggling to find community and people to talk with, then please send an email to recovery at palmvalley.org and I will personally get you connected with a volunteer from Celebrate Recovery. Nothing changes the fact that we need each other, even if that means that we have to find new and creative ways to do so. You can also send me encouraging messages, comments, or concerns to that same email, recovery at palmvalley.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then please share it with someone else. I love you all, and I hope to see you soon.